I'll let you know up front, I couldn't find a video. And so uh, the one I was looking for was the cathedrals. They had a hymn. Uh, this is, I'm sure it's out on CD, but this, I had it on the cassette. And so uh, I wore that thing out. And so that's who I'd find. I found it with just them singing, but there was no video to go with it. And so anyhow, I don't have, We'll let, we'll let the three, the trio, be our special music tonight of, of our song. Isaac Watts wrote that hymn. Isaac was born in 1674. He was the um, oldest of nine children. His father what was, was what was called a nonconformist pastor at the Church of England. Um, another nonconformist that you may have heard of is Matthew Henry. When I felt a call into the ministry, somebody gave me the one-volume Matthew Henry commentary. It's the first, first book I put into my pastoral library. It's a great commentary uh, from back then. He was a nonconformist as well. Um, what that means as a nonconformist is they, they believed that the Church of England didn't separate far enough from Roman Catholicism. And so they didn't want to conform to the Anglican Church. They, they were nonconformists because they wanted to be farther away from uh, the Catholic doctrine. Twice, Isaac Watts' father was sent to prison for his convictions because of what he believed. Isaac was saved at the age of 15. Now, to show you what kind of mind he had, by the age of 16, he had mastered Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French. I'll just be honest with you. Two of the best years of my life were in first-year French. No kidding. Had to pass it to get out of high school, and so uh, I took it a second time just to pass it. Um, Around 20, Isaac Watts became dissatisfied with singing in the nonconformist church. What they would sing, basically all of their songs were hymns straight out of Scripture set to music. And so his dad challenged him, said, if you don't like the hymns that we're singing, write better ones. And so he did. His hymns, though, were criticized by both the Catholics and the nonconformists. They were said to be uninspired because they weren't direct quotes um, from Scripture. Now, I love what Watts said about that. He said, and I quote, If we can pray to God in sentences that we have made up, then surely we can sing to God in sentences we have made up. And I, I like that. He went on to become a preacher in the congregational church. He uh, continued his musical composition for years. He stood barely five feet tall, but he's considered the father of English hymns. He, he single-handedly revolutionized congregational singing. We wouldn't be singing like we just did had it not been for Isaac Watts or if the Lord had raised up somebody else in his place. Churches still sing his hymns. Um, o God, our help in ages past, when I survey the wondrous cross, alas, and did my Savior bleed at Christmas, joy to the world. Those were all written by Isaac Watts. Um, and what was interesting is at the cross, and alas, and did my Savior bleed, I didn't realize this until I was studying yesterday, They're the exact, it's the exact same poem set to a different tune. And so if you look those two hymns up in your hymn book, you'll notice that the verses are identical. Now, the, the refrain, the chorus to at the cross, wasn't written until 1885. It was added then. Now, we don't know what caused him to write these words, but we do know that other people were inspired by his words. In um, 1851, a young woman by the name of Fanny Crosby was at a revival at a Methodist church. She had been to the altar three times during this revival. This was her third time at the altar. And as she laid there, she, she felt like God still hadn't really, she hadn't done business with God. And she heard the congregation singing as the invitation hymn, 
the last verse of at the cross that we just sang, they got to the words, here, I give, here Lord, I give myself away. It's the least that I can do. And Fanny Crosby's testimony is that right there at the altar, when they sang those words, that's what she did. And Fanny Crosby would go to pen 8,000 hymns, many of which we still sing today. And so at the cross, we're in the great hymns of the faith series. Tonight, of course, is at the cross. Take your Bible and open it to Luke 23. Luke 23. Now, we're not going to read just a whole continuous passage of Scripture. We're going to read just a few verses um, here and there out of Luke 23. So when you find Luke 23, go ahead and stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Let's begin in verse 26. Now, as they led him, Jesus, away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Now go to verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. Have you ever wondered why the gospel writers don't go into a lot of details about the crucifixion and what it entailed? In fact, if in our text, in verse, um, was it verse 33? Verse 33, it simply has four words. There they crucified him. Now, why, why don't the gospel writers tell us a whole lot? Remember, when they're writing this, Everybody understood the horrific nature of a crucifixion. So they didn't have to go into any details. It, it painted a vivid picture in a person's mind when, when, he, when Luke wrote, there they crucified him. That was horrific enough. People understood. They, they had all witnessed them. They were, they were staged publicly to be a deterrent to crime. Okay, so a person would be crucified publicly as a way of, of saying, you don't want this to happen to you. Um, none of us have ever seen a crucifixion, a real one. A few of us, but probably not many of us, have actually watched people die. All of the crucifixions I've seen, even in the Passion of the Christ, as, as graphic as it was, it's somewhat sanitary. I don't think we can really get our mind around the, the horror, the obscene horror of what a crucifixion was like. There were three crosses that day, and every cross was on a road somewhere three different roads they were all on a on a path i think the jewish leaders intentionally put jesus between two thieves that day why guilt one was guilt by association if he's there between them then he's guilty by by being associated with them what they didn't understand though was that that was god's plan all along wasn't it 700 and some years before jesus was born the prophet Isaiah 
in Isaiah 53, 12, said he would be numbered with the transgressors. And so it was God's plan all along to put Jesus there crucified with criminals. But I think they were trying to humiliate him as well. So let's talk about the three roads tonight. As we talk about the three crosses, the three roads, uh, as we think about the hymn at the cross. The first one is what I call the road to perdition. The road to perdition. We, we don't know the names of these criminals. None of the gospel writers tell us. Luke, the words Luke uses uh, mean bandit or robber. What's interesting is Mark uses a word that could mean murderer. Here's the point. The gospel writers are letting us know these are not petty criminals. These are hardened criminals. These, these are guys, this wasn't their first time around the block. They had, they had probably done time before, and the authorities had just reached the breaking point where they were tired of dealing with them, and so they were going to execute them. As they hung there, they heard the masses. We didn't read verse 35, but it says, The people stood looking on, even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed, saying, if you were the Christ, save yourself and save us. Could Jesus have rescued all three of them from the cross that day? Absolutely. He sure could have. Here's the thing, though. Jesus is not as concerned about, about clean hands as he is a clean heart. What he wants is a clean heart. This guy, just, this guy just wanted, he, don't worry, he didn't have faith. The only thing he wanted was Jesus to get him off of the, cro off of the cross, okay? I, I love the way um, when Max Licato writes, he tells stories. And in one of his books, he tells a story about how God wants to, the, the, the thief on the cross wanted an external job. He wanted to be set free from the cross when what Jesus was about was doing an internal job and changing his heart. He wasn't necessarily about getting him off the cross, but changing his life. And so Max Licato tells about one time that they actually went on vacation and um, they, they unplugged the freezer. When they went in to unplug something in the garage, they unplugged the freezer by mistake. It was summertime and they'd been gone a couple of weeks and when they came home and opened the freezer door, actually when they opened the garage door, he said, um, as I would say, that will just bless you. They could tell that something wasn't right. And so he, he quickly realized he had unplugged the freezer on accident, and so now what's he going to do? He's got a problem. He's got all of this rotting meat and this stench in this freezer. So he came up with several ideas. He said, you know, I could get a rag, and I could scrub and polish the outside of it. I could clean it up externally so that it, was so, it looked like it was a brand-new freezer. But you open the door, and the odor's still inside. Nothing changed. Well, he said... Maybe I could throw a freezer party and invite all of the neighborhood appliances to come. And, and as they come, improving the social life of the freezer might help. And he said, no, that won't work either. He said, how about giving the, the freezer some class? I could, I could go get a Mercedes emblem, and I could weld it on top of the freezer so that the freezer had some class. And, and then he says, no, that, that won't work. I could even put a cell phone inside, but nothing's going to work. Here was the point, he said. You can't do anything with the exterior when there's rotting on the interior. And this thief, what he wanted is he wanted Jesus to do an external thing, get him off the cross, and, and what he didn't understand is that's not going to do any good because the rotting was on the inside. This thief was so wrapped up, he missed the Lord. You know, I thought we're a lot like him. We, we make sometimes New Year's resolutions... 
people you work with even, don't go to church anywhere. They make New Year's resolutions. They're going to lose weight. They're going to spend more family time. They're going to quit smoking. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. More exercise. You've got to deal with the internal problem of sin before you ever fix the external problems. And that's what they miss, and that's what this thief missed. Now, let me ask you a question. How can, how can this thief be just a few feet from the very Son of God and miss it? I mean, how can he be that close and miss it? He's not the exception. He's the rule. Jesus told us as much in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So, so this thief over here, the one who uh, was on the road to perdition, um, he's not the exception. He's the rule. Every Sunday, I believe, every Sunday, when I stand here and preach, I believe there are people in this room that are on the road to perdition. They are that close to being saved, and they just won't do it. They just won't allow the Lord to change their life. June 11, 2001, Timothy McVeigh was executed by lethal injection. You know he had bombed the Alfred uh, Murrah Federal Building there in Oklahoma City, 168 people died. His last words, I shared this with you one time, he, he, he read from a poem, Invictus, by William Ernest Henley. And I want you to hear the words that he read as uh, they were about to put him to death. He said, I thank whatever gods that may be for my unconquerable soul. My head is bloody, but not bowed. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, lest we be too hard on Timothy McVeigh, there's actually some truth in what he said because by not submitting to Jesus Christ, he captained his own soul into hell. So he was the captain of his own soul. Jesus doesn't force himself on anybody. He allows us to make a choice to put our belief and our hope and our trust in him, to accept him as our savior. And, and if we choose not to, then we become the captain of our own destiny. See, when we, when we accept him, he becomes the captain of our destiny. He's not the co-pilot, he's the pilot. We're not even in the front seat. All right? we're, we, at times we're backseat drivers, but, but I mean, he's the one that is steering the thing. All right? The road to perdition. You know, if your faith is conditional on God performing, it's really not faith at all. This, this thief said, you know, God, he said, Jesus, if you'll get me out of this jam, I'll believe in you. If you fix my problem, I'll trust you. Do we do the same thing today? Do people do the same thing today? If God's so loving and good, why do you let my child die? Why do you let my husband die? Why, why do you allow me to lose my job? When your faith is conditional on God performing up to your standards, that's not really faith. That's not faith. Uh, John Piper calls it carjack theology. Now let me explain to you. I, I want to read you a few sentences he wrote because, man, I think, you know, there's some things I don't agree with John Piper on, but I, I agree with him here. All right, listen to what he says. This thief's attitude reflects the old carjack theology. A carjack is dirty, a useless thing to be kept out of sight in the trunk until you have a flat tire and then he put in parentheses a little bit of suffering 
Then you get it out, let it do the dirty work, and you put it away again. The thief said, if you're such a good jack, get me down off this cross, Jesus. Today, Piper says, we say, if you're such a good jack, pull me up out of this sickness, out of this financial mess, out of this lousy job, out of this crummy marriage, etc. I think we're a lot like, a lot like that thief at times. The road to perdition, that's the first road. The second road is the road to paradise. The road to paradise. In verses 40 and 41, the second criminal rebukes the first one. Now, we know that from the other gospel accounts, initially they both blasphemed Jesus, all right? But something happened to change the heart and mind of this criminal to where he rebukes the other guy. He says, here's my paraphrase, my South Central Kentucky paraphrase. Are you flat out of your mind? Think about what you're doing. We're getting what we deserve. We are guilty with a capital G, but this man's done nothing wrong. Why are you talking to him? You, you want to mess with somebody? Talk to me. I'm guilty. He's not. He rebukes him. And the remarks of this second thief, I think, are a prayer of faith. And I, I believe if you sincerely pray what this, pre, what this thief said, the Lord will save you. There were three parts to his pr prayer that I want you to see. The first part of his prayer, he said, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. He says, don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve when it comes to sin I, I think we oftentimes try to live in denial we try to make our our sin sound acceptable you know we change the name of it um you know about the guy who who was to put together his family tree on ancestry.com and was supposed to give a report at the family reunion about how, how all of the previous generations had done and he was shocked to find out that they had a, an uncle that had been arrested for murder and had been put to death in the electric chair. And so he's thinking, now, you know, all of, all of the grandmas are going to be there, and everybody's prim and proper, and, and how am I going to make this sound right? You know, I can't just come out and say he was a murderer and he got electrocuted for it. So here's what he said in his report to the family. Uncle Harry occupied a chair of applied electricity at one of our important government institutions. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. He didn't lie, did he? I mean, that, that was the truth, but that's what we do with sin. You know, God's Word says it's adultery, and we call it an affair. God's Word says that it is, it is sodomy. It is homosexuality, and, and we say it's an alternative lifestyle. You know, God's Word says it's drunkenness. And we call it a social disease or, or whatever. Do you get, the, you get my point? We, we try to dress up sin with a different name to make it sound acceptable. This thief didn't sugarcoat anything. He didn't cover up anything. He said, we are guilty. And if you want to be saved, the very first thing you have to do is you've got to tell God, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. It's not him or her. It's me. Well, the second thing he said is, you, Jesus, are holy. He said, I'm guilty, and he said, you are holy. Now, those aren't the exact words he used, but they do represent the attitude of his heart. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. So he's admitting the holiness of Jesus. He's saying, listen, not only does he not deserve to be on the cross, but he's done absolutely nothing to, to be here. In a way, he's acknowledging that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. 
what caused him to change his mind? You know, Matthew and Mark both say that he also um, blasphemed at first. What do, you think, what do you think changed his mind? I think he heard the people sneering, the, the leaders, the, the religious people sneering, if you're, the, if you're the Christ, come down and save yourself. He heard his friend talking to Jesus about if you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. He saw the, the, the guys who had nailed him to the cross gambling for his clothes. And then he looked over at Jesus and what did he see? With a heart, with, with a hoarse whisper of a voice, he heard, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think that's what changed his mind. I, I think he was expecting, if it was him, he would have been like the other thief and he would, have, he would have yelled at the people and he would have chastised them for even having to put him to death. But with Jesus, it's different. He saw something different. The word repent means to change your mind. Now, you've often heard that repent means an about face. Yes. It's a change of mind, literally, that leads to a change of action. So in other words, you change it, you're walking towards something that is sin and you change your mind about it. You say, I don't want that sin anymore. Instead, I want God. And so what this thief does is he repents. He, he says, I don't want that. I want this. Another Max Lucado quote from Six Hours One Friday. This is, this is the book that he wrote about the crucifixion. And I want to read to you the, uh, a few sentences from it. He hears the jest and the insults and sees the man remain quiet. He's talking about the thief who, who put his faith in Jesus. He hears the jest, the, the insults, and sees the man remain quiet. He sees the fresh blood on Jesus' cheeks, the crown of thorns scraping Jesus' scalp, and he hears the hoarse whisper, Father, forgive them. Slowly, the thief's curiosity offsets the pain in his body. He momentarily forgets the nails rubbing against the raw bones of his wrist and the cramps in his calves. He begins to feel a peculiar warmth in his heart. He begins to care about this peaceful martyr. There's no anger in Jesus' eyes, only tears. Jesus died in such a way that in verse 47, even the centurion, the guy who was in charge of the people who crucified Jesus, even he said, this is the Son of God. Do you know when Jesus... Do you know when people see Jesus in you? When they, um, when they insult you and you don't retaliate. When they speak ill of you and you don't get mad or even. When you show love and forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. That's when Jesus in you will catch the attention of those around you. That's what happened with this thief. The third thing he said is, I trust you with my future. He said, I'm guilty, you're holy, and I trust you with my future. Now, what he literally said was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? He's just hours from death. He's about to die, and he realizes that death is not the end. I mean, there on the cross, it hits him. I'm going to die, but this isn't the end of the story. He believed that Jesus was a future king and that he was going to have a kingdom. Now, they had put up a sign, Jesus, king of the Jews, over the cross, and they were doing it mocking him. But I believe that thief read it and he looked at Jesus and he thought, you know, he really is a king of a kingdom. And so he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, nobody could look less like a king than Jesus. 
His face is swollen. His beard's been plucked from his face. He's been beaten. In fact, Isaiah tells us his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred more beyond human likeness. Basically, Isaiah says, There's n- if you've ever seen a fight and you see somebody after a prize fight and they are all beat up, Isaiah says there has never been anybody that looked as bad as what Jesus did when they got done with him. That's what he tells us. And this criminal says, I'm trusting you with my future. Now, just want to point out something to you. Do you notice the humility in how he says what he says? Just days before, James and John, their mother, they come to Jesus and say, give me the seat on the right and the seat on the left in your kingdom. This poor thief just says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I, I don't need the best seat. I just want a seat. Third is the road to pardon. We've seen the road to perdition, the road to paradise. The third is the road to pardon. On the center cross hung Jesus, suspended between heaven and earth. Because he was, because he was fully man, he could take the hand of sinful man, and because he was fully God, he could take the hand of holy God and bring the two together. Through his death, he brought us together so that we could be, the Scripture says, reconciled, to God. Do you know what the word reconcile means? It means to agree. So, when you get your bank statement and you reconcile your bank statement, what you're doing is you, you hopefully agree with the bank on how much money you have in your account. I am always excited when on the first try it works. I know there's a few bankers in here. Lisa, just ignore what I'm about to say, Okay. How many of you have ever done what I've done? You got tired of looking and you just like, I'll just take, if, if I'm $2 over, I'll, I'll write $2 out to make the checkbook balance. Anybody else do that besides me? All right, I just wanted to know I'm not the only one that does that. Um, reconcile means to agree. And so what Jesus, when he reconciled us to God, what he did is he brought us into agreement with God. Colossians 1, 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile, to agree to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross once. It says you, but we could say we. Once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now he has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So he brought us into agreement with God. And so just as the thief had three parts to his prayer, Jesus has three parts to his promise. The first part is today, the best time. He tells him today, the very best time. Jesus doesn't say tomorrow. He doesn't say in three days. He doesn't say in 40 days when I send back to the Father. He says today. He doesn't say after you've been baptized after you've went through catechism, after you've been in purgatory for a few years to take care of the sins you committed, Jesus doesn't say any of that. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The scripture teaches the moment a Christian dies, they go to be with the Lord. There's, there's nothing like soul sleep described in scripture. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So 